This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey there, it's Matt Bonzel with Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Today, I'm thrilled to have a guest, a good friend of mine, Sean Tipping, who is A, an instructor for a college, and B, a mobile diagnostic tech. So I've asked Sean to join me because I hate talking to myself and I needed somebody to banter with, but I kind of have a vehicle I want to discuss and a piece of equipment I used, and I really wanted Sean's input as an instructor and also as a mobile tech. So very much looking forward to this. Thank you, Sean, for joining me. Of course, I am. Uh, I'm super excited to be here, Matt. Uh, um, I actually, I think it's really cool that uh, you got your own show now. This is. Uh, I, I'm I'm pumped for this. I, I want to like. I'm excited to listen to your episodes for this show. I didn't purposely like ignore the fact that you have the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast, <laughs> but I wanted it to lead into this. This worked out fairly well for me. That I've been on yours and Carm's shows so often that the powers that be just decided, hey, you know what? You should just have your own show. You know what? Make room for the rest of us. Yeah. Very glad you could join me so soon and on fairly short notice. Well, that's how it works in the podcasting world. It's usually like, uh, hey, what are you doing tonight? You got time for a two-hour podcast? (laughs) And somehow people in the automotive industry seem to make that time work. Yeah, and you just crossed 100 episodes. You're up to, what, 101? At least that are out in the uh, out and available, 101. You might have far more. I, I got a couple in the the memory banks waiting to come out. But yeah, it's been a it's been fantastic ride so far. That's all I can say. Um, I mean, honestly, you're probably the single biggest contributor to the show. I, I, I know for a fact you've been on more episodes than anybody else. So big thank you to you. But I mean, just everybody that I've gotten to talk to, I think I mentioned this before, but like, I wouldn't necessarily like me personally have an excuse to sit down and have long conversations about this stuff with these particular people. Like, I'm just not that guy to call somebody up be like, Hey, you want to talk about the automotive industry? But it gives me a reason to, and other people like to listen to it, which is cool. But honestly, I I've, I've enjoyed it so much just getting to chat with everybody. So uh, I feel lucky to be able to do it and lucky to be here with uh, chatting with you right now. It's a really good one. Especially the ones without me. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some of the best ones. <laughs> You've been a college instructor now for a while, right? Yeah. College or technical college or? Yeah. It's, well, it's a community college. They have academic courses and then a bunch of trades as well. And this is my fifth year, or my fifth group of students. So we're about halfway through the fall semester right now. And, um, you know, covid Obviously, through a wrench in the works there for a little while, but I'm uh, definitely getting my feet under me as far as this goes because I had no previous teaching experience before I started teaching in 2017, and so it's been uh, it, that has been another big learning experience for me. Um, but I, I am feeling much more comfortable each year that I do it, so uh, I, I enjoy it quite a bit too. What made you decide to start doing mobile stuff? I'm a glutton for punishment, number one. <laughs> um, I finished my first year of teaching, which was brutal because I had to go in, write 10 courses from scratch because the previous guy took all his material, which after I wrote 10, I understood why he took it. I mean, it was his, he created it, but God, I feel guilty like if I had somebody replace me and I just took everything and didn't help him at all. Yeah, that's that's the way it worked. And so the first year was brutal. And so I was like, oh, summertime. Awesome. I'm just going to relax all summer and have a great time and hang out with my friends and do whatever. It's awesome in Minnesota in the summer. And I did that for about two weeks. I was just a lazy bum and just sat around the house and really didn't do a whole lot of anything, honestly. And then I was bored. I was like, hmm, I need something to do. <laughs> and uh, I see all these other mobile guys doing their thing just out there being really impressive uh, for, to me anyways. And I'm like, okay, well, let me look into this. And 
that first summer, I just slowly started. It was very, very minimal at first, maybe a job a week where I'd go program a, a GM control module or something. And um, kind of just snowballed from there because I got a taste for it. I enjoyed it. It was a good challenge. And then I also realized, oh, this is keeping me up on stuff. But now that I'm not an actual technician anymore, I'm not wrenching every day like I was when I was at Firestone and you kind of get rusty and I was like, well, this will help me keep up on everything for my classes, stay relevant for my students, which I value when I have a relevant instructor. So I want to be the same for them. Um, and it's, it's continued to grow um, <laughs> almost at a rate that I can't control, but there's worse problems out there. So <laughs> yeah, definitely say no or raise my rates. I don't know. That's, that's my solution <laughs> to the overload of work that I have at the moment. In the name of education can't be what you charge people. Right. Right. I mean, you could, there's, there's certain vehicles that are good, good educated educators and it's worth the, <laughs> the time invested, but yeah, you don't want to do that every day. I know we were going to Thornton classes. We were in the same classes often. Yeah. And I, I think we've, I recognized your name through social media. I don't, I don't know if you had the podcast yet. I didn't No, I didn't start it until like, I, I had like three or four episodes out before COVID hit and then you don't see anybody in person. And I don't think John has done his in-person classes up here since. Um, but yeah, I remember, I think I sat next to you in one of the classes and same thing. I recognize your name. Sat next to me. Usually I think you sat like one row behind me to my right. Usually. Yeah. So anyways, I was going to tell you about this car I had. Maybe I should start out with almost a, uh, I, I'm going to come clean. I I broke down and used an ohmmeter. And I don't know, maybe some, maybe you'll kind of laugh at that. Or maybe, maybe you'll wonder like, what am I talking about? But I got to level with you. I never used my ohmmeter ever. It was taught, I guess, out of me. Mm-hmm. In school, not not my two year, but my third year of uh, automotive. Uh, it was a program, automotive diagnostic program at Alexandria, which I don't know if people even know much about that anymore. I don't know if you guys, you know, as a community college have ever heard of that or heard about the program, but it was a third year program. And they literally reprimanded you for using your own meter, except in like very, very specific times, purposes. You better not be checking the resistance of a GM Maltec fuel injector. Don't do it. We either have a tool for that or you scope it. Mm -hmm. I don't use it. I never use it. So I got this um, 2014 Chevy Silverado towed to me from another repair shop. And turns out this thing has had quite the journey. <laughs> it started out, uh, I think, in Massachusetts. Okay. And not at Joel Amaral's shop. <laughs> as a Chevy dealer and the client had it towed there and it was a, a no crank, no start. And it sounds like they, they gave up on it and that's not to trash the dealership. This thing was a mess. The uh, dealership called it a lightning strike. Customer reached out to their insurance company. They totaled it immediately. It went off to the, uh, evidently, either a salvage yard and somebody bought it back or the dealership ran it on the auction, a dealer auction. And it made its way to, it sounds like South Dakota where this shop bought it. And there's a shop from, uh, I think Wisconsin could have been Minnesota. doesn't really matter really, but anyways, they, t they buy it. I guess they get a smoking deal on it. And this, this truck is immaculate. It's immaculate. It, I mean, I think it was, Maybe 60,000 miles, no rust, nothing. I mean, it looked, bright, looked like brand new inside and out. It was not, a, I'm not like the pickup guy who just gushes over right. vehicles, but in their defense, they, it sounds like they bought it very, very inexpensively and it was a beautiful vehicle. Okay. They confront the uh, no crank, no start, and they figure out that the truck, if you will, the quote unquote, the truck, doesn't recognize the key. Okay. 
they start out, I think they put a body control module in it. Then they put the um, transceiver in it or the halo or theft module, if you will, you know, around the key. Sure. And then they put a powertrain control module on it. And they had the ability to program these things. And they programmed. Okay. Same issue. Threw their hands up. And then somehow, some way, they find me, know about me. I, I, I don't know. Call me up. Do you want to take a crack at this? And I'm like intrigued, like no crank, no start. How big a deal can that be? And I right. and then even like condescending is really just curiosity. Like what? Right. It's got to be a net. It's got to be a network problem. Uh-huh. So it shows up. I can communicate with a lot of modules, but not all of them. It's almost like, I don't know, maybe describe it as a shotgun splatter pattern about what you can communicate with and what you can't. Okay. Is this like a fully fully loaded pickup truck with a lot of modules, or is yeah. it like a work truck with like five or six? On the outside, it looks like a work truck, but on the inside, I mean, I have a most network. I have Linbus, I have Can High, gotcha. uh, or, or GM High Speed LAN, if you will. A couple different Can buses, so I, I can talk to some modules, and others I can't. Uh, so offhand, off the top of my head, ABS control module I can't talk to. Okay. Fuel pump control. Well, wait, fuel pump control module is not that had a network to it, but it wasn't where you talk to it directly. Mm. So, anyways, it, it doesn't see the key. You know, the theft light comes on, doesn't go out, flashes, all that. I try programming that thing. I had all my key programming tools on it. I had factory scan tool on it. I mean, I was killing myself. I, I mean, factory scan tool, I guess, in this case, is SPS. Could you talk to the theft deterrent module? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I could look at the data. Yeah. Lots of codes, communication codes. Um, not the, it didn't have the, um, like, start blocked by theft in the PCM or anything like that. Okay. So it was just weird. So, okay, I'm thinking it's got to be network. So what do I do? Bust out my uh, DLC breakout box? And uh, the line spy, and then I plug in my Pico. And I'm telling you, the CAN bus is a mess. Okay. It was a mess. So then what do you do with that? Most networks that I dealt with, network issues, I could scope the CAN bus and generally get away with unplugging modules or mm-hmm. finding some sort of a, maybe a, like a splice pack, maybe like some sort of a central for lack of a, I don't think they're technically called splice packs on CAN, but if there were, were as a splice pack or a joint connector somewhere, some way where I could start dividing you know, the removing, network. Yeah. This was not laid out that way. You could not just unplug modules. I mean, you could, it just wasn't going to help you. Okay. Yeah. The CAN GM LAN went into the module and it came out of the module. Yeah. So if you wanted to do that, you were using jumpers. You had the jumper wire across to quote unquote bypass it, almost like the most bus. Sure. G- the GM most bus. So if you're a Euro guy, different kind of a most. But I mean, that's what you do with those too. You loop it if you want to bypass yep. the module on those. So it, yeah, kind of, kind of the same idea with the GM WAN. So I'm kind of banging my head against the wall, and um, I, I call Thornton on a unrelated, completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. And we're just shooting the breeze. And then I, he's like, well, you got anything interesting going on in the shop? I'm like, as a matter of fact, I do. And I was kind of telling him about it, like, you know, and doing this with a math channel, comparing the low to high. And it's like, I think it's really more on the low, uh, you know, it's can, can low. And he's like, well, what's the resistance? What do you mean that the resistance is? I got my scope on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, you know, you might find that helpful. So that's really all we talked about it. It's just this really kind of cool car or issue, I should say. And so I bust out the the ohm meter and I plug it in and I have like 86 ohms at the DLC. Okay. And this is where things get kind of, for me, this is where things kind of go really interesting is now... Because I have the ohmmeter on there, I can kind of divide this vehicle in half. Sure. Where the DLC goes 
and how it loops through everything. You know, the first thing it hits, I think, was like the transfer case control module, which A, you couldn't communicate with, and B, when you plugged it in, would blow the 40 amp fuse immediately. I mean, it would explode. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyways, I, I, I go and I uh, find a connector under the, uh, under the hood on the driver's side, very close to the firewall. And kind of part of, or connected to, stuck to, if you will, the um, po- power distribution center area. And I find the can wires and I cut them. Because I, I want to kind of start dividing this problem up. Yeah. And I cut the wires and it goes open loop, or open loop. <laughs> OL. Okay. Out of limits. Open loop. Jeez. <laughs> It was running, and I cut the wires and it went open loop. So <laughs> it was not running, but I cut those wires and it goes uh, out of limits in you know super high resistance. So you're measuring from what point when you did that? When you, it was at the DLC. Okay, yep, so, okay. I was at the DLC. Gotcha. And I mean, without a diagram, you know, I should probably email everybody diagrams so we can follow right. along. And I know I'm trying to talk about this, you know. On, with no visual references. Uh-huh. But I don't know that it's all that important because, you know, you have the wiring schematic in your hand and it didn't matter if it was the OE one or the, um, the Valley Forge styles that you would get in Mitchell or all that, or now uh, Identifix has them as well. The color diagrams, mm-hmm. the, the pathing seemed uh, accurate, but it, it should have been um, where I cut them. I should have been able to measure the resistor, the terminating resistor in the back of the uh, vehicle, which would have been by the uh, fuel pump control module. Okay. And as open circuited. Okay. And that's where, that's where I needed two. I had two of, um, of the AES wave uh, U tests kits. Those came in very, very handy on this vehicle. Okay. Cause that's, I had to break down and start jumping stuff. And I, I'm just going to say, it's not a long story, but I got to the ABS control module mm-hmm. and that was open. Not just open on one, but open on both can high and can low and open internally. Weird. And this was a hint as where this vehicle was going to go. Because when I jumped that... My, I got some, you know, I got like a hundred and I don't know, it was like 150 ohms of resistance. So, I mean, just long story short, what ends up happening is I have a, a series of modules that are failed internally, affecting the network in different ways. Okay. And, and so some were open, just blatantly open. Some of them were partially shorted. So, like the HMI module, can high and can low resistively shorted internally. <laughs> this is just a mind job. And it's, oh, it's yeah. you start questioning every test because no way, just no way. And the only explanation I have is this thing's a lightning strike. I, I don't know what else would cause this. And it's not limited to just these module failures on the network. The fuel pump control module didn't work. And it wasn't okay. the Norman. It was the OE one. Okay. No fuel pressure, you know. So you know, I got communication going. I got a key programmed. It would crank over, not start. I had fuel, no fuel pressure. Fuel pump wasn't being commanded on. So okay. fuel pump control module replace the transfer case control module. A no communication, not not adversely affecting the network, but it just won't talk and internally shorted. I assumed when I plugged it in and the forty amp blew that I had an issue with like. The transfer case shift motor. Yeah, I just I just assumed that, and, and I didn't replace it. But that, that was where my line of thinking was: unplug the motor, still blew the fuse. Okay, and then I you know get a big headlight in there. Uh, actually, it was two headlights in a row and in, in series to try to get that current flow up. And man, every time I plugged it in, it popped. So it got a transfer case control module. Okay, and that fixed that. Then the odd thing was is we're replacing all these modules. And I think all in all, I'm just just on can type modules. I think I was up to about eight. Wow! <laughs> right? 
So we got the transfer case control module. We got the HMI um, fuel pump control module, power steering control module. Um, what sucked of the power, I guess, not to be jumping around, but we would replace these modules, would gain communication with them. Okay. So a lot of these were, I mean, A, they were adversely affecting the CAN network, preventing me from doing certain things or communicating with certain modules. The other thing was is some of them were dead to the world. In this case, the power steering control module was not adversely affecting the CAN network, but it wouldn't talk. Okay. We replaced the power steering control module, and then lo and behold, it sets a steering angle sensor code and a torque sensor code. Torque sensor code is part of the rack. Guess what you get when you order a rack? New power steering control module. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. So that's just the CAN network. And it wasn't limited to just that. I we uh, The PCM, when I could talk to that and only set like a single code or two, mass airflow sensor. Or on this one, it's, you know, they call it the weather station. It's a whole bunch of yeah. stuff in that. Mass airflow, legitimately bad. Yeah, the sensor legitimately is bad. It's not wiring. It's not terminal tension. The okay. sensor is bad. The steering angle sensor was legit, legitimately bad. The torque sensor, legitimately bad. Hmm. And it just doesn't stop. Um, the ABS control module, put that in. It sets codes for the vacuum sensor at the brake booster. <laughs> this went on and on and on. And the the owner of the truck is the cool the coolest person I've ever met. I, I was going to ask, like, yeah, how do you proceed with buying parts for this? This thing's go going along? insane, and he's like, you know, you're the guy. <laughs> you know, if it's broke, fix it. Okay. You, you start thinking about just ordering everything, right? But it didn't need everything, and that was just the can. Now, you know, another complaint, the power windows don't work and the battery goes dead. Jeez. Right? Turns out it needs um, the uh, driver's door module and it needs the master switch. <laughs> so when oh, I diagnosed wow. the bad master switch, I, you know, plugged it in and it didn't work. Like very little changed other than the output of the switch. Yeah, and I'm like, you idiot! You misdiagnosed this. You 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 got lazy. Needed the driver's uh, door module, which is part of the window motor. Okay, put that in. Mm-hmm. The windows, the the front two windows work. Okay, drivers and passenger front windows work. The rear ones don't. So I'm like, yeah, you suck. Now you're gonna plug in the old switch and it'll work. No, it didn't. So it needed both. Jeez. And then you go to the back. And those were a little more, they, you know, those weren't door modules in there. They're just straight up, but needed both switches, passenger and uh, driver's rear window switches. Those have, uh, those got boards in them. I mean, it's more than just a switch, right? Not much more. Okay. That was pretty simple. Okay. But it's, it's like, what in the heck happened to this truck? And you're asking them like, I mean, you asked, did you hook the battery up backwards? But man, if people hook up batteries backwards, usually there's signs. Sure. And why the CAN network on some of these modules, like they're internally open or partially shorted. The ABS to open up on both of those basically shorting bars <laughs> for the network inside. That's, that's nuts. It was the most insane thing. I don't know. I spent a lot of time at the shop. I'll, it became kind of a, you know, part of the shop. Yeah. To, you know, put like flowers in it and stuff, <laughs> dress, dress up the place. But it's just like one thing after the other and then waiting for parts. And yeah. some of them you could get rather quickly and some of them not so quickly. And man, it was just the most insane thing. But yeah, it's, it's, it was the ohm meter because okay. the scope. I mean, the scope, you would have been jumping a lot of stuff except for, I mean, probably the the PCM would have been the only thing you wouldn't have really been able to disconnect. Is that at the end of the network on that one? 
Yeah, the PCM's on the one end with a terminating resistor, and then um, the, the uh, terminating resistor is in its own connector, if you will. Sure. Back by the uh, fuel pump control module okay. to the frame. You know, and I measured the resistance of both of them because this just seems so weird. But they were fine. Okay. The BCM probably would have had to been on there too, just uh, even for power moding and stuff. Mm-hmm. Wake up. Or I would have had to, you know, manually wake, wake everything up. Right. So, yeah, the, I would, I've been in classes or I've presented classes where I've been pretty anti ohmmeter because I would say my mantra uh-huh. would be, and really stolen from uh, Harvey Chan, is the thing with an ohmmeter is if you test it and it tests bad, you know it's bad. But if mm-hmm. you test it and it's good, it might still be bad. Right. And uh, I was showing a, a co-worker this because um, I was seeing he was using his ohmmeter a lot and I was just you know, busting his balls pretty hard about it. And I took a voltmeter with his ohmmeter and showed him like your your ohmmeter puts out like three volts. Okay. There's no load. And then I reversed it and showed him like, I, I think I was showing him like a Vantage Pro that put out what I felt was a fairly impressive five volts. Okay. So there's no circuit loading involved. Right. That's why I'm pretty anti-ohmmeter. I know a lot of car manufacturers... Uh, at least in the past, that was a very important test was cavity to cavity, terminal to terminal, using an ohmmeter to verify oh, circuit yeah. integrity. And it's a weak test. Yeah. It's extremely weak. You see it in flow charts all the time for uh, when you look at the DTC stuff. Uh, I know Chrysler and Ford, they'll have you ohm checking all kinds of things. So that's like probably the number one test that you do when you go through the flow charts on those is... Let's ohm it to ground, ohm it to this wire, ohm it to that wire. It's just yep. all over the place. And you're going to spend a lot of time if you follow every one of those steps in the flow chart with the ohm jacks. Yep. Yeah. So, but I guess in the case of the network, we do know that we have two 120 ohm terminating resistors, at least in the CAN network, this particular one or most. And you would expect 60 ohms. And when they're on, it's close. Trying to think. Like, again, I don't don't measure the resistance of a lot of networks, but I don't really remember many dropping much below 57.8. You know, 57, 58. Maybe up to 62. Yeah. I mean, when they're on, they're they're usually pretty on. So it's, it's not a horrible test. But to me, what gave it, this, you know, and granted, this is kind of a jacked up vehicle. What gave it that um, testing relativity or relevance, I guess, would be an even better word, is the ability to split the vehicle and and get a direction. In my in my case, it was both directions. It was yeah <laughs> going both ways. But generally, that's not the case. This is not going to be the regular issue. Yeah these these GM networks where they're uh, I, I call it daisy-chained, and I think I might have heard that from somebody else, but that's the term I use for those, where it goes, it's like a, it's like an in and an out of the module. And I realize the CAN network's not in and out, but that's what I consider it. Like, I started the DLC, and I work away from that, and so I consider something farther away from me downstream, right? Like, the, the PCM or the ECM is the farthest downstream because it's at the end. There's no other... There's only two can wires going to it, right? And I don't know of another manufacturer that does that on a regular basis, but GM has obviously been pretty um, in love with that model. And, of course, we see a lot of GMs. We see a lot of issues with that, too, because let's say on a Chrysler, you have an ABS module that uh, for some reason becomes unplugged or disconnected. That's not going to disable a vehicle. That's just going to disable the ABS and set some codes and some lights and stuff. But you have a Chevy truck where that ABS module comes disconnected and you got the fuel pump module downstream from that. Your vehicle's not running anymore. And there's a ton of different scenarios because there's so many different network configurations, but it, it builds in a, um, just a 
more likelihood for failures that disable the vehicle or cause major vehicle-wide problems that you wouldn't see in others because it's just you open up that network in one spot and i realize it can happen on other vehicles too but you open it up at a connector at a module or whatever and that's it it's it's down and yeah so i i don't i seem to get calls for these maybe it's just the the gms are more common but boy i see a lot of problems with those networks um and yeah that's where that's where that ohm meter Okay, so here's the deal. I, I'm actually kind of a proponent of the ohm meter. Um, I I understand the whole loading the circuit thing. I, I totally 100% do, and and that's part of it. That's part of why I suggested in certain places you have to know where it can do something for you, what its limitations are, and that that's one of the things I talk to my students about. It's like any test that you do, any test that you do, you got to know the limitations. That there's a purpose for it and it can do something for you, but you have to ask yourself, okay, if this passes the test that I'm doing with this, like you said, or, or you were telling, talking Harvey Chan said, like, if it's, if it fails, it fa- it's failed. But if it's good, does that mean it's good? It's like, um, you know, that blue block tester fluid that you yep. use for head gaskets, right? If that fails, if it turns yellow, you, you definitely have a problem. But if it doesn't, change color that doesn't mean that you don't have a problem right same thing that's a very very good comparison you're spot um, on yeah and and does that mean you should never use it um not necessarily are there there are other methods that maybe are more effective yeah probably but it could still potentially be something that you could use in, in a situation and get an answer quickly um but the ohm meter if you understand its limitations I think it can still be useful. And, and, you know, that GM daisy chain style network is really one where this, this two wire circuit is running the length of the vehicle. And I don't know if you stretch those wires out, you'd have 40 feet of wiring, right? And you can quickly touch two terminals underneath the steering wheel and assess that entire thing like that with a number. Um, That's, that's pretty powerful. That's a place where that can, really be useful but yes understand that you're not loading that circuit don't use that on a wire to a headlight that's not brightly lit like that's that's probably not going to be the effective place for it you have to understand what that tool is doing what the limitations are for that for that testing method um so i don't know yeah i use i use my own meter all the time here's the okay here's the other time (laughs) that i use my own meter is just for verifying that i'm on the right pin for something like i'm trying to i'm looking at a connector it's got a bunch of pins i'll I'll switch to the continuity the beep mode and i just want to make sure okay beep okay cool i'm on the right circuit this is the one that i want to be testing i'll I'll use it for that um it actually saved me or, or it helped me diagnose um i do i go to a lot of transmission shops right and so they'll rebuild transmissions and they'll they'll replace the sub harness and so um, that's like the connector on the outside of the transmission, down inside under the pan, to all the solenoids and the sensors. And a transmission shop did this on a Dodge, and they had a pressure sensor code that kept setting. And they replaced the pressure sensor, and they traced all the wiring, and they, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And it ended up being that the connector at the pressure sensor, two wires were in the wrong position. They, they were basically swapped from where they were supposed to be. Right. And I, I got them drop the pan and I'm doing some testing. I'm like, something doesn't make sense here. So I get up to the connector on the outside of the transmission and I have my wire down on my suspect circuit and I set my ohm meter to beep at me. And I'm just quickly touching the terminals until it beeps. I look at the number. I'm like, okay, well, this is the wrong one. Right. Um, could you do that with another method? 100%. But I couldn't see where the wires went into the back of this connector. Um, I could only see the front side, so I couldn't tell the colors and where they were arranged. The ohmmeter made quick work of it for me, right? Only because I understand what it's doing. I understand the tool and what it can do for me, but you also have to understand what it can't do for you. If you, if you, if you don't have that, if you think it can just give you the answer every time, then right. It, it, that's, I think that's where the instructors are probably coming from at your school, was that if you rely on this thing, as an end-all be-all circuit analysis, then yeah, you're going to make wrong calls or maybe waste time like the 
flowcharts tell you. But if you get what it does and what it does well, I don't see why you can't use it. I mean, we're talking late 90s. So, man, what do we have for networks? You Right, right. Um, you know, Chrysler had the CCD bus. I mean, I, I guess uh, maybe SMSFP, SCP, maybe a little bit. And I, I would say in the independent world, in the independent shop, at the dealer level, okay, they're, they were seeing for sure probably SCP, uh, CCD. I don't know if, I don't know if they would have been seeing um, the next level of Chrysler. It's very, very like class two. I forgot the name of it though. <laughs> There's a S- SPI, is that it? I just remember the no bus light on the dashboard. Oh, those are still there on some of them. PCI, PCI, it's PCI, PCI bus. Oh, okay. Man, it was, it was right there. <laughs> PCI bus. They were probably starting to see that or okay. probably almost assured, assuredly seeing that. And um, their point was on most of the drivability type stuff and um, electrical. So lighting, that was their big thing. Minnesota, a lot of corrosion, sure. cro- corroded connectors, um, rock rock chips so like rocks would um, get kicked up under the vehicle hit a harness cut the wire or at least cut the insulation and they would corrode inside and we got that pixie sticks um, scenario where Mm -hmm. I still urge everyone do not taste it it's not (laughs) lime what would happen is the ohmmeter would pass with flying colors it was very low resistance you know, technicians would not be able to figure out what's wrong with the vehicle or sure. what's causing this issue. Spending way longer to figure it out than they should. And then the voltage drop, of course, would be the dead giveaway or using a test light, a, a higher load test light, something, you know, I've been buying some test lights from uh, Harbor Freight for, geez, I don't know if they're even five bucks, four bucks. Mm-hmm. I got an incandescent bulb in them. Or as I'm sure you do, you, you start building your own yeah. ars- arsenal. If uh-huh. you will, right. very varying size uh, sizes of bulbs. So, you know, one ninety fours, thirty one, you know, eleven fifty sixes, thirty one fifty sixes, you know, something of that nature, and then sealed beam headlight. I can say this: if you stick a one amp bulb that fits in your test light, it'll work, but it'll melt the plastic of the test light eventually. So just a warning to anybody out there that wants to mess around with their own tools. I can just see it just melts. You're holding it and your hands on fire. It, it did. It did work for a while, but I kind of noticed like, Oh, it's getting a little distorted. And the more and more I used it, it would sort of just melt more and more. I'm like, okay. I've long said that you can kind of judge a, a text electrical ability, you know, testability. If you look in their toolbox and, you know, if they've got a meter and a scope, that's that's good. But if they got, you open up that toolbox and they have an array of bulbs with little pigtails, you know they probably know their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, let me ask you something here. I'm thinking about talking to students about you know, what we're referring to as far as you got to check the circuit loaded, right? And we say that a lot and use voltage drop and they, they get that. And a lot of them will just use voltage drop and they don't even really grasp why they're doing it, right? And then, you know, some students will be using voltage drop on a circuit that has no current flow through it. And then it's really a useless test, right? And then it really throws them for a loop. Yeah. Um, or, or they're going voltage drop across an open load and, it's showing 12 volts across that, right? But they don't understand, right? So anyways, um, and and maybe I'm getting away from my question here, explaining how an ohmmeter will measure, let's say you got a wire, it's got green crusties in the middle, right? You ohm it and it measures zero ohms, which you would expect from a wire, right? But if you try to put a few amps of current through that, it's not going to happen. And I've kind of struggled with, and I've shown examples and we talk about it, but I've kind of struggled with a real simple way to explain how it, it doesn't measure as resistance with an ohmmeter, but there is resistance there if you try to force a load through it. Do you have like a 
give an explanation for that, a simple way to put that to somebody that would kind of click with maybe some beginners? I, I mean, I hate water analogies. It, it's probably stupid of me to hate it because a lot of electrical problems have been fixed due to people thinking of electricity as water. Okay. And water flow. In, in this case, you're talking about the ohmmeters just trickling water through. There's no current. Voltage is really low. Current is even less. Uh-huh. So there's the one little strand of wire, even if it's not all that, um, yeah, the integrity is not that great, still will allow that little bit of water through. It's almost like a really rickety, rickety bridge. Mm-hmm. Your kid could walk across it, be just fine. Sure. You walk across it and you're swimming. <laughs> yeah. Assuming it's over a river and it's over just a canyon, you're dead. <laughs> or I guess depending on how high the bridge is. Okay, this is going sideways, but <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting off the rails. That that would be the way I would start thinking of it. Either the water or even the bridge. Like You're talking about load and the ohmmeter just doesn't put any kind of a load on the circuit. It's very, very little. At least the digital, you know, DMMs or DVOMs that we use. Yeah. Um, some of them older uh, analog ohmmeters, I think they put a little bit of, a little bit of more load on there. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to imply they're putting like an amp on it. Sure. If somebody wanted to build a tool, that would probably be pretty cool is an, you know, an ohmmeter that you could kind of adjust how much current, you know, and it would actually apply 12 volts. And now you're looking at, you know, more of a dynamic resistance, which, you know, we calculate that way by looking at voltage and current. Right. You know, and that, and I guess that's kind of where that goes too, is the demonstration, the one way to think about it would be the bridge, Mm -hmm. the bridge scenario. The other way is showing, you know, like something uh, visual with the Ohm's law, set the voltage at whatever the meter puts out, five volts. Well, the current's going to be extremely low. You can kind of do whatever you want with the resistance. It's not going to really affect them. Right, right. But you start adding some current and, you know, probably some voltage too. All of a sudden, now that change in resistance affects current. And, and I mean, depending on where we're measuring the voltage would affect the voltage as well, right? The voltage drop. You'd be dropping voltage across this load. This resistance becomes a load, you know, not to go too crazy with this, but. No, that's, that's a good way. I definitely have never thought of pointing out the voltage that the meter puts out. I, I, I've never mentioned that in class. So that's, a, that's a good just point to, to show everybody there, but it, it kind of makes sense then to, if if you're looking at it, you start bringing the the mathematical portion into it, yeah. right? Like you're saying, like amps and, and resistance stuff like that. That definitely makes sense. I, I wonder if you could find like an older analog meter. I don't Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or sure might be buried at the school somewhere. There's some yeah, storage right? rooms there that there's some really Especially old that, stuff, like an electronics course or something. Mm-hmm. The old analogs, I think, would put a put out a little bit more voltage, a little more current, especially especially like, um, I mean, they're all battery powered, but they, I think, they had a fairly good. They're heavy, and then took energy to really move that needle. Okay, okay. You know, wasn't everything wasn't like super solid state? But I wonder if you could just find one of those, even if it wasn't perfect. Uh huh. And. Compare it, just measuring the resistance of like a bulb or something that requires some current flow to work. Yeah. And just measure the resistance. Not that measuring resistance of bulbs is ever a really good diagnostic test, but you're more after a concept that you measure the resistance of the bulb with this modern digital multimeter that puts out very low voltage, very low current. And now an old analog that puts a little bit out well, they're measuring different resistances. Which one's right? And you could argue they're both right, but yep. they're both right and they're both wrong because now let's let's fire this thing up. Let's measure the current. Let's measure the voltage. Now what's this dynamic resistance? Sure. 
you know, on. And, and that brings back to what your instructors are telling you about is, yeah, let's look at the current when the circuit's operating, right? That's, okay. that's really telling us everything, especially when it's an output. And that's, that's the other thing I try to get across to my students is like, you got to know what the circuit's purpose is, right? Is this an output or is this an input? Because it's going to change how I'm testing it, right? I'm not so concerned about load testing a, a map sensor signal wire, right? Maybe I need to do it in some weird scenario, but odds are probably not. But it's very rare, very rare. Inject or injector or coil or uh, some output that needs current. I'm going to think about that circuit differently and test it differently. And so, again, like you know, you should understand your testing equipment's limitations. You should have an expected result, but you should have a really good idea of what that circuit's purpose is, what that wire's purpose is before you start testing it. And I think that intuitively will guide you to using the right method or the right tool to assess it properly. Um, but that's, that's where all the learning and experience comes in. I think if they could leave, um, you know, schooling with you guys, with that, just just kind of the fundamental understanding of it, I think that just puts them at all a really good position for down the road. Especially, you know, the best thing is is learning something, be it in college or, um, you know, at, at a a class, a, a seminar, and then seeing it in front of you in the bay, and having that light bulb go off in your head, just like oh. <laughs> that makes sense now. I, I, now I get it. It just makes such perfect sense. And it's kind of the, <laughs> it's a kind of a dichotomy, right? Between being really, really happy and being really upset with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like how did I not get this before? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Part of the reason I brought it up was to kind of ask how you handled that in the, at the college level with students that, you know, do you guys discuss the ohm meter and how prominent is it? And, yeah. Um, so you can't ignore it. Right. Right. It's right there on your, on your, you click it over two things and you're there. But, um, so I do, I don't do the basic electrical course and I, I'm, you know, good friends with the instructor that does. And his big thing is voltage drop, right? That's, that's how we're testing circuits and they cover the ohmmeter. They know how to use it, but that's not what they're using, you know, for circuit testing, which is awesome. Right. But going back to what I said, like, sometimes I'll get a student. This isn't the fault of the instructor, right? It's just that students are at various levels, and they put various effort in to the course. And they'll do the voltage drop testing, and they know how to perform it. And they know how to, you know, read the meter. But they don't necessarily understand why they're doing it in that situation or, or what's required to do that voltage drop test. And if they don't have that background, they don't have that understanding the test throws them way off into left field um so it is it's just it's very it's, it's tough to get everything packaged well for everybody teaching a whole group of students that are across a wide range of skill sets and effort and interest that's way more difficult than i ever thought it would be i thought everybody was going to show up for college and they were interested and they wanted to know this stuff and they're going to put effort in and it's just plain and simple, not true. And so you have to, you have to, some people, you have to meet them at their level and do what you can for them at their level. And then the opposite's true for somebody at a higher level of effort or interest or skill and try to meet them there and stretch yourself to, to meet both. It, it's definitely not a perfect science and I definitely don't have it down, right? I've only been doing it for five years. So uh, I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface, but I've been taken back at times by how much you need to, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to say dumb down. That's, that's a bad way to say it, but you have to bring stuff down for certain people in order for it to be useful for them. And then you have to bring it up for others or they're going to be bored and they're not going to be interested. And then, then there'll be distracting other students. So you have to challenge them at the same time and do this all within the confines of a accredited course that has specific outcomes. Um, it's a challenge for sure. I know we've talked in the past um, 
I don't I don't know that you guys have enough time right uh, to do a lot of it because it's easy to say like specifically electricity there's nothing that we interact with on a daily basis that acts like electricity it you know it's just kind of this phenomenon and there's mm-hmm. there's um you know laws if you will that it follows and we can use mm-hmm. our um you know benefit for checking for it and how it's behaving and all that but also just a lot of um auto repair in general and and I'm sure it goes through all sorts of other professions but it just seems like ours is so varied and your the um practical knowledge and experience of the entry level individual into these programs is got to be it, or not got to be it is it's lower than it's ever been before because of the environments they're growing up in do not perpetuate any sort of mechanical aptitude at all right you know mom and dad or the neighbor or you know grandpa they're not fixing your bike anymore because they, you know they can't take it to the bike shop it'll cost more for them to fix it than to buy you a new one and mom and dad maybe don't know how to anymore and the parts are probably more expensive than to just get you a new bike so same with the lawnmower right you google why the lawnmower doesn't start put a spark plug in it and new gas and whatever. And if that doesn't fix it, you can't afford to fix it anymore. You can't take it anymore and have somebody fix it. You just throw it in the dumpster and you go down to Walmart and buy a new one. And yep. so they're just never in a situation to learn how, I don't even know so much how things work. You know, a lot of things, you know, like a bike, you could see how that works. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, one day the oven doesn't work, and mom takes that all apart and finds, you know, nowadays maybe a circuit board, but, you know, an, a heating element. You may not know why the heating element works, but, you know, when you turn it on, it should glow red. Mm-hmm. And when there's a big missing gap in it, it ain't going to, you know, it can't heat up anymore. So, you know, you put the heating element in it and away it goes. I, I just don't think the vast, vast, vast majority of kids are subjected to any of that. The main thing that they deal with is really probably software, you know, apps, Mm -hmm. phone doesn't work, you know, finally break down and do the master reboot, master reset, whatever. And then master reboot. That's a, (laughs) that's a Toyota hybrid reference. Yeah. They're great on technology. That's the thing um, is you get the, not the not the the hardware level of things necessarily in the circuits and stuff, but the the technology, the interface, that's where that's where the students shine and beat me out most of the time on this stuff. Um, so they they do have an advantage there, but yeah, on the nuts and bolts of things, um, some are good. Some, especially where I'm at, we get some in from a rural area up north, and they've been experience like you were like when you were young and working on a farm and stuff like yeah. that and they they bring that but that's not that's not everybody and and for the ones that don't i mean is it more important for me to spend more time with them learning threaded fasteners and, and getting good at that to go into their entry-level job than it is understanding networks and and things like that i mean an argument could be made that i don't need to spend my time on networks and, and loading circuits and stuff that they they got to figure out how do these uh, nuts and bolts work so they can go make some money. So yeah. and they're probably not leaving a two year starting at a shop as the lead diagnostician. Yeah, they might not touch a can network for several several years yeah. after they go into the field. Yeah, but I you know sometimes I wrestle with the idea not wrestle like you know this keeps me up at night but I the idea pops in my head if the if it was more like a mandatory three years and then you get the kid in who grew up in a shop, however, is very mechanically inclined, can leapfrog to the second year. And now they're really going for two years. But some of these others, yeah. they're going to have a year of uh, almost like generals, if you will. You know, not that they're going to be in all generals classes in the conventional sense, but in the auto automotive repair world, they're learning about 
this is a screwdriver, flathead, Phillips. This is a Torx. Yep. You know, you know, male, female, or internal, external Torx. Um, this, this is a hammer, and we find that silly. But there's so much of that; they just have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it would be a waste of time at all to have something like that. And maybe it's not a whole year. Maybe it's you know three months. I, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to play around with that. You you know you start here and that they might learn so much from that people that come and work for us. They've never, never heard of a mini ductor. Sure. Right. No concept of what that is or yeah. what it does or how it works. Eat it. <laughs> yeah. It's not a knock on them at all. It's, you don't know mm-hmm. what you don't know, but yep. you're coming into this profession and you don't have this. Somebody tells you to go grab, you know, a, a even a Phillips screwdriver is as ridiculous as that may sound or any number, a ball joint press and you have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. And if the box didn't say ball joint press on it, you, you wouldn't have grabbed it to bring it over and the embarrassment of not knowing that. And, you know, here you go like this. We're going to start you out at the very beginning, you know, and I think that would be time very well spent. And then it would allow the more knowledgeable, the kids with the experience, not that there would be so many, but the program's already going. It's already there. They could leapfrog that. Sure. And now they're in year two, which would be our, maybe typically our uh, year one. And now they're in it. And just stuff I think about. Otherwise, it's usually when they start talking about a third year, the third year is more and more advanced. And whatever that means usually involves diagnostics and scopes and maybe programming and stuff like that, where depending on where they're going to end up, I think a lot of that stuff, specifically programming and stuff, that gets kind of covered when you're doing it. You know, if you're going to work at a dealership, they're probably going to show you how to program their vehicles. Yeah, exactly. Any shop, it's just going to be a really rare case that you're coming out of school and, all right, you're our main... Diag person, go get it. Yeah, it just doesn't happen very often. So we toyed with that idea. This was pre-COVID when things moved a little smoother within the college. But we we were talking with the other trade programs because we're all kind of in the same... Oh, we are. We're on the same campus, right? The campus is split into two, east and west. We're on east. And... So we're talking to HVAC and welding and auto body and facilities management. And we were talking about getting a, you know, basic comprehension course for a student wanting to enter any of these programs that would work with basic hand tools and threaded fasteners. And, and, you know, each program wanted to interject, you know, inject something that pertained to them. And, you know, maybe we could make that work. And we didn't actually make any headway on it and getting it to happen. But the talks were there. And so maybe someday we can get something like that going uh, to try to get everybody to somewhat of a floor. Yeah. It would have to come from us on, on our side of the classroom, the, the, maybe not the text, but the shops would have to really start demanding this and supporting it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if that happens, you know, right now I think they're just crying for help. They'll take, a warm body that can find the shop, you know, every morning. Right. Well, dude, if we keep going, we won't have anything to talk about next time. <laughs> Assuming you'll come back on. Cause oh, any, anytime I'd be happy to. Yeah. Really enjoyed this. For sure, man. Yeah. Thank you again. Hey, thank, thank you. Sean tipping of the automotive diagnostic podcast community college instructor, mobile diagnostic and programming technician. Any, anything else? Any other? Hockey player. We'll go with that. Oh. <laughs> a very uh, slow, uncoordinated hockey player, but uh, nonetheless. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I didn't know if you were like a stand-up comic or a screenwriter. <laughs> no, those wouldn't make me much money. <laughs> yeah. Build decks on the side. 
Well, take care, man. Thank you so very much for this, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.